Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that highlights a wide range of challenges and triumphs that our military-connected kids experience. My name is Dickie Harrison, and I'll be your host today. We would like to say thank you for the support of the Air Force Officer Spouses Club of Washington, D.C. for this episode. I am so excited to have joining me today a special guest, and I would love for him to tell a little bit about himself. And again, just excited to have Dr. Cortez Dial here with us. Nikki, thanks so much for having me. I am a huge fan of MSECs and the mission that you guys perform, assisting military children all around the world. And so anything I can do to assist you in that mission, I am more than happy to do. A little bit about me. I was born and raised in inner city Chicago. My family's from Oklahoma and Mississippi, so I spent every summer there. I like to say I was the only kid in Catholic school with real cowboy boots because I'd get a new pair every time I'd come home. I went to Northern Illinois University to go to college where I was commissioned into the Army. I spent 30 years in the Army and then went into higher education. My last four years, I was teaching at the War College in the leadership department, and I had had an assignment as a professor of military science at Virginia State. I was offered an opportunity to join their staff and faculty. And so I finished my career in higher education after 15 years of working there when I retired from the military. Thank you for telling us a little bit about yourself and thank you for your service. We are so appreciative of that. And with our month of podcasts here that we've had in Black History Month, we've been talking about a lot of different things. And one of the things that we really wanted to talk about were HBCUs, historically Black colleges and universities, and just bring some more education and awareness to our listeners. So I would love for you to talk about what an HBCU is and why they were established. Well, more than happy to. Just for housekeeping purposes, before I start, I'd like to say that I'm going to use definitions of my own to try and make it simple, and and I don't represent any particular HBCUs, but I'll try to encapsulate uh, what I think they are all about with a little bit of the history behind that. Essentially, the first one was established in 1837, which is now Cheney University, and most of them were formed between the 1860s and the 1900s, primarily after Emancipation Proclamation, because, as we all know, from the slavery era, it was actually illegal to educate African Americans. And so as we prepared to be free and to go into the workforce, everybody knew that there was a need for education. But because of segregation and Jim Crow, then we established separate institutions. A lot of them were established because of the Morrill Act in 1862, but once again, because of segregation, that was predominantly majority institutions. And then the second part of that act in the 1890s created what we call the Council of 1890 Institutions, which were 19 HBCUs that were land-grant institutions across the country. And that was essentially the birth of HBCUs from then until now. Because of the social revolution in the 1960s, I would tell you that our focus expanded 
to Americans that were disproportionately affected, either economically, culturally, socially. And so HBCUs, many of them state-owned, many of them privately owned, opened their doors to all disadvantaged Americans. And that is essentially the way it is today. In fact, some of them, West Virginia State University, for instance, is 72% majority as we sit today. Bluefield State is 78% majority, but they still retain the history of how the institutions were founded and the HBCU title. Thank you for talking about the historical significance that they have. And I think that is so important for our listeners to understand kind of, you know, why they were formed, how they were formed, and that we still continue to have many of them that continue to be institutions of higher learning today. You already talked a little bit about it, but I wanted to to really get into who can attend because I think sometimes there's a, a misnomer of, who can attend an HBCU? No, that's a really good question. And you're right. That misnomer stands out there. My experience says everyone's welcome at HBCUs. It is predominantly uh, attended by folks of lower economic status, also folks that may be disenfranchised in our overall society, first-generation students that are attending college, whether they be state or private. Anybody can attend, though, and, and, and everybody's welcome. My favorite story with that is uh, at Virginia State as the chief of staff, the athletic department and the athletic director reported to me. And so I can remember Coach Lashley, who coached softball. She came to me and she said, uh, Chief, I need your help. I'm trying to recruit this young lady who's a pitcher. And the hardest thing to recruit in softball is a pitcher, right? And she said, and I, and I need your help. You know, to assure her that we're going to take care of her, that we want her to be a student first and then an athlete. And I said, sure. And so when I met her, she was a little girl from Utah. I told the coach afterward, I said, coach, there's no way she's coming here. She's a Mormon. This is Virginia. This is the Bible Belt. This is South. She doesn't look like us. I, I don't think she's coming. And she said, no, no, no. She's found a Mormon family uh, off of Midlothian that, that's going to be her local Parents, I really think she's coming. Well, long story short, she came, was phenomenal, second in all-time strikeouts, pitched two no-hitters back-to-back, was all CIAA all three years, graduated on the dean's list every single year. And the amazing thing is she only played three years and graduated in three years. So I call her all the time, KJ, uh, Christian is her name. I said, KJ, you still have a year left. She's married with three children now, but I, t- I keep trying to get her to come back and break the record. <laughs> That's a great story. And I love that it sounds like she had such a positive experience. We put her into Athletic Hall of Fame uh, two years ago. That's awesome. I I love that. That's a great story for sure. I love for you to talk a little bit about the admissions process. Yeah, our admission process is much like every other university's and they're tiered, right? Each HBCU is a little different. There's kind of a cultural standing within them. There's five or six who claim that they are the number one historically black college, right? So you can get that argument. I don't think there's an official designation. But generally, it's a conversation between Spellman, Howard, Morehouse, 
FAMU, Fisk, you know, you name them, you know, they all want to be, and Hampton, you know, they all want to be the number one, but they're all fantastic institutions and they have different requirements. Some of them lower than others. And when I say lower, I don't mean not qualified. I mean that they give what we call opportunities for people to go to school and prove themselves. Admissions for the SAT, if they still use that or consider that, might be 800 and above, as opposed to a school like the University of Virginia, which their floor is 1,200, right? If you don't score 1,200 on the SAT, they, you know, will generally tell you don't waste your time. So we kind of give what we call the opportunity to become a college graduate. And most HBCUs are welcoming like that, with the exception of those that consider themselves the HBCU Ivies, which have a much higher standard. It's great for you to talk about that the admissions process looks, you know, the same or at least very similar to any other institution of higher learning and that there's some opportunities for access. Because I think when we talk about higher education and having the opportunity to graduate with a college degree, it's access, right? And how do you gain access depending on your educational background and, you know, test scores, of course, are into play. I have a high school senior this year who applied to quite a few colleges and universities that are test optional, right. which, you know, was unheard of when I was going to college, right? Absolutely. And so I just think it's amazing that we are giving the opportunity of access to a college education to so many different individuals. Well, let me put a plug in for Virginia State. I don't know whether your senior <laughs> has, has applied or not, but the uh, lady, Dr. Lisa Hobson, uh, who runs our honors program, was actually the first person I hired when I got out of the Army and came back. I've watched her grow up, get her master's degree, her PhD, get married, have two kids, all of that. She runs the honors program, and she's a phenomenal individual. As we speak today, she is at the White House on the White House Initiative for HBCUs. And so please have your senior reach out to me and, and at least put Virginia State on your list. Okay, I'll have to have a, a conversation with him tonight about that, give him some other opportunities for him to think about. And I love that you mentioned the White House initiative as well. I think we'll put some information in our show notes about that, because I think the White House is initiative with HBCUs is they're really doing some phenomenal things with funding and things like that. And which really leads into my next question, which is about HBCUs receiving the same type of funding as other institutions and having you talk a little bit about the availability of scholarships for students. Do they receive federal funding or is there institutional funding available? This is a, a situation where there's essentially three types of funding, right? There's federal, there's state, and then there's private money. The state money is generally pretty much the same throughout universities in state schools. Federal money and opportunity to federal money is pretty much the same with a couple of caveats of there are unique federal programs that only some schools are able to take advantage of. For instance, there are research schools, the gold standard, 
is John Hopkins and Georgia Tech. They receive about a billion dollars a year in research money of various types because they're designated as university research activities by the government. Everybody doesn't have that opportunity, obviously. So that money is a little different. Where the real difference comes in is private money. And part of that is, unfortunately, a legacy of how we got here in segregation, why HBCUs were formed, and all of those things. Think of a marathon race of 26 miles, but somebody has a 15-mile head start, right? So trying to close that gap becomes a very difficult situation. I think the average endowment of the top 15 universities in the country is about $21 billion. I know of no HBCU that has a billion dollar foundation. And so that's really where the bulk of the difference comes in. And that money provides different opportunities at those institutions for their particular students. Yeah, I think it's good to talk about the money aspect of attending any institution, but specifically an HBCU as a student, you know, if I'm considering wanting to attend an HBCU and I am from a low income family or background, you know, being able to have a way or a means financially to afford the education that I so desire. And so it's nice to know that there is money that's available, whether it be through scholarships, grants, or whatever it be at the federal, state, or private level. And it's funny when you were talking about the research institutions, I recently read an article that talked about the Department of Defense trying to kind of put some federal money into HBCU research programs, specifically targeting those that are in the STEM field. So like engineering, science, it's interesting that that's happening as well. And I was actually involved in in some of that a couple of years ago during the COVID era, you know, looking for institutions and trying to assist institutions with the opportunity to do that. And I think the latest award that I'm aware of, I think Howard, about $90 million or something like that in research, which again, is very good, great progress. Sounds like a lot of money until you look at John Hopkins, which has essentially a whole wing and Georgia Tech, which is a separate college almost of research that is awarded a billion dollars a year, right? It's a little bit different. Not that they don't deserve that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about that 15 mile head start that we're trying to close the gap on. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's important to talk about that, you know, we're getting there. So HBCUs produce about 50% of all black teachers, 70% of all black doctors and dentists, and 80% of all black judges, which I was in awe of when I was looking at this statistical data. I was like, that is incredible. So what does this say about the opportunities provided by HBCUs and me going back to that student that's considering an HBCU in one of these fields and what kind of opportunities employment do I have after? I think probably the point where we talk about the entire educational process and where I think HBCUs are really unique and special is that they tend to because of how they were formed 
and the legacy that they produced have always been in the mentoring business. They've always been in, let me show you what we can accomplish, right? Don't believe the negativity of what you can't do. Let us show you what you can do. The Tuskegee Airmen, right? We weren't smart enough to fly planes. We weren't able to do that. Well, you know, they proved that different and bless her heart. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt got in one of those planes and says, hey, I'll fly with you, which essentially changed the course of that experiment. All of those types of things where teachers taught other teachers and doctors taught other doctors and lawyers taught other lawyers, our ability to inspire those in our own community through our own institutions is something that still goes on today. And we wrap our arms around not only African-American students, but students of all races, colors, and creeds who have been on the lower economic status or whatever reason choose to come to us, we then give them that same type of mentorship and nurturing to accomplish their particular goals. And there's many cases of that. One of my favorite students is now serving as an officer in the Coast Guard. He came to us from Pennsylvania. Uh, he's doing a fantastic job. An Amish kid, if you can believe that, right? So he flourished at Virginia State. There are countless stories like that. Thurgood Marshall was a Howard grad. Booker T. Washington, who founded Tuskegee, was a Hampton grad, right? It's us serving our community and our nation in the best way that we can. Some amazing individuals that you mentioned there and that really were better together. I think that's really important to talk about. You know, when we talk about opportunities provided from HBCUs, what it looks like in employment, and that we are all pulling each other up together um, so that we can all be successful. I think that's really the important part of mentorship and definitely sounds like an important part of the experience at an HBCU is having that mentorship. I'd so, like to give you this example, if I can. Class of 1968, there was a young man commissioned and died in Vietnam. His name was Vassar Hurt. His classmates, and he was a C student, not a great student, but just a great human being. And he was admired by all of his classmates. They came together at Vassar Hurt Foundation is led by a young man named John Fleming. And since 1968, when they founded that, they have raised money and provided scholarships for our ROTC cadets at Virginia State. The first recipient of one of those scholarships is Major General William Thickpen, who's about to retire from the Army now. And you can imagine how proud all of us are of him. And he and all of the other scholarship recipients who have came after him keep that foundation growing, going, because we understand what it means, right? And so that's not in the New York Times or headlines or any of those. Those are everyday Americans who are working hard, who believe in that cause, who have a connection to their HBCU and their fellow teammate, Vassar Hurt, and they make it happen, right? And so that's the kind of environment that exists, not only at Virginia State, but I believe it 
almost all HBCUs. Well, what an accomplishment. And also you talking about the opportunity for ROTCs that are available at our HBCUs as well for those that are considering military service as a career or maybe haven't thought about it, but maybe thinking about it now and that being a program that's available to them, I think is really important. It's funny, I am married to a now retired Marine, which I think I've said probably several times in these podcasts. And it wasn't until just a couple of years ago that we have had our first African-American four-star general in the Marine Corps. And so, and it was celebrated. And as you can imagine, something really amazing to see and that it's taken so long for us to get there. I think that progress is really, really good. And I love your attitude about that. And those of us that, what I call that are in the fight, right? We we can see progress. We appreciate progress. And I would just ask, uh, you know, everyone that when we surface an issue or concern, that it be taken in that vein, that we are positive people who appreciate the progress, but we want it to continue, right? We don't want to be satisfied and rest on our laurels. We have 250, some people would say 400 years of things that we have to unravel that are institutionalized. And so we're about that business. Olinda Johnson, Dr. Olinda Johnson is a permanent professor at the Naval War College. I've worked with her on several things. She's a Florida A&M grad, University of Pittsburgh, PhD. For the last five to six years, all of the senior officers of the Navy have to go through her leadership course. Now imagine that. This is a business undergraduate minor, minority female, who is imparting wisdom on the entire leadership of the Navy, right? And they welcome that, right? Now, again, that's two sides of the coin. She's there and she's being celebrated by them because she's able to bring a unique perspective to their leadership outlook. I think that's a beautiful thing in progress, but she's an HBCU graduate. And so she brings that unique perspective. Really does show the growth and progress that we have seen over the years. So do you have any advice or words of wisdom for someone considering an HBCU. I, I'm thinking, you know, maybe we have a listener that's like, I'm listening, I'm considering an HBCU. Um, yes, I can tell you how I approach all college students. I talk to them. It's like shopping, right? If, you know, you can see an outfit in the window, right? And it looks really, really good. And you think, oh man, that's a beautiful outfit. I got to have it. And then when you go in and try it on, it may not look the same as it did in the window, right? It just doesn't fit on you. I think all colleges are like that. You need to go put your feet on the ground. You need to walk the grounds and you need to understand why you think you want to be there. And so with my own children, nieces, nephews, everybody else, I always say, what do you think you want to do? Give me three things. Okay. Let's look at two regional schools, two dream schools, two state schools, and two private schools that are all good at those things. Now, 
let's go visit those schools and put your feet on the ground and talk to part of the faculty or or staff and see if that looks good on you, right? And so if it does, then move that to your preferred list as you get ready to apply and, and choose your school. I would put HBCUs in that same category, right? They're not all the same, but look at those who are good at what you want to do and then compare that to the other schools that are good at what you want to do. And your heart will tell you where you want to belong. I remember my daughter, when she was going through the process, she wanted to go talk to who was going to be my advisor. And if they couldn't tell her that, then wow, you know, she, well, I don't know who I'm going to talk to when I come here. So I don't know why I come here. And so finally, you know, she found a niche where, you know, the, the person said, I'm going to be your advisor and you, and you're going to get to play soccer here and all those things. And so that's where she ended up going to school. That was the best fit for her. My son was blessed, you know, and he ended up going to the Air Force Academy. So everybody has a different view. I wouldn't say HBCUs are for everybody, but I would encourage everybody to go to the ones that are good at what you do and at least put them on your list to see if you feel comfortable. I think that's the best advice you could give is really just to, you know, make these lists look at what your interests are, which one of these institutions match up, and go see them. I think uh, if you have the opportunity to go visit some of these schools and campuses, I think that's great. I know that's helped us uh, as a family and my son kind of make some decisions. So, well, I- And I'm, just, sure, your, I'm sure your husband has him on a marine timeline, right? Like, I, hey, well, you know, we got it. We got to hit these gates. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. There's There was a Marine recruiter also part of, are part of that process and you know, other individuals. So he, you know, wanted to make sure that was part of it. But I have just really enjoyed our conversation, your knowledge on HBCUs and just the, the impact that they have had on our history within the United States, I just think is incredible and just appreciate everything that you have shared with us today. I think it's really informative and really good to be educated on. Thank you so much for having me. And I guess the point I'd like to leave you with, because we want to leave on an inspiring and uplifting note, I think, right? So we want to remind our listeners that at West Virginia State University, a historically black college and university, 72% of the students that attend there are majority students. That means those students went there, walked that campus, touched it, and decided, oh no, this is the experience I want. Regardless of the negative things that may go on in the news and in our country and everything else, young people are making individual decisions about where they feel comfortable regardless of the label on it and proud to do it, right? So I think that is a credit to our young people that are coming up. It's a credit to our institutions that are welcoming them and making them feel comfortable enough to make their college decisions. And so I would just, like we said, encourage us to just keep moving forward. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed chatting with you today. My pleasure. 
I'd like to thank Dr. Cortez Dial for his time today, as I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and give today's show a five-star rating. And don't forget to leave us a comment on topics you'd like to hear more about. We'd like to give a special thanks again to the Air Force Officer Spouses Club of Washington, D.C. for supporting this episode and Consentus Media for audio mixing. I'm Nikki Harrison, and until next time, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Be kind.